Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church Podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. So welcome to a different setting for a different kind of sermon. My best friend growing up was Grant King. We met when we were both eight years old. His family moved into the other side of a subdivision of acreages where we lived in central Alberta. So one morning I was shooting hoops in our driveway and Grant King walked up. I had never seen him before. He had never seen me before. So we looked at each other and eventually Grant said, hi. And I said, hi. He said, my dad died last night. It turns out that his dad was involved in a tragic accident and died the night before in the hospital. Looking back now, I realized that this little eight-year-old boy had walked a couple kilometers from home in a daze because he was in shock. I didn't know that when I was eight, so I just said the kindest thing that little eight-year-old Mike Manis could think of saying, and that was, do you want to shoot hoops? And Grant said he did. And so we shot hoops. And we hung out all day and into the night. And looking back now, I realized that was the first of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days that we would hang out over the next 11 or 12 years. We were Grant and Mike, and Mike and Grant. And it was a world of wonder and endless possibilities, and time was always on our side. Like, I remember the time when we were 12 years old, and we were riding our bikes through the subdivision, and we rode past a place where the garage door was up just about two feet. Now, Grant was behind me, and I just blew right by, But eventually Grant sped up and caught up to me and he said, did you see that? I'm like, did I see what? He's like, follow me. So Grant turned around and I followed him back to that place. He said, look. And so we both like leaned over and looked through uh, that two foot opening at the bottom of the garage door. And inside that garage were video games, like arcade games, not just a couple, but 15 or 20. Now you got to understand what a big deal this was for us at this time. The only way that you could play video games for us when we were that age, was to go grocery shopping with your mom and beg her for a quarter. Okay, and if eventually she gave you a quarter, you would run over to the arcade machine, you would stick the quarter in, you would play your three lives, and because you never got a chance to practice, you would last about 47 seconds, and then you would go back and beg your mom for another quarter. Sometimes you would get two, you would never get three quarters. But here we were, and we saw in this garage, like 15 or 20 arcade games. I think we like dumped our bikes right there in the road. We walked up to the door, we leaned down and we started calling, hello, hello, is anybody there? Hello, can you hear me? Is anybody there? And eventually, finally, this older guy opened up the garage door a few more feet. He ducked his head and he walked out. He said, what can I do for you boys? He said, why is your garage full of arcade games? He said, that's part of my job. I fix video games. And and in that moment, Grant and I, we were mesmerized. Like we just stood there in stunned silence. Like in in that moment for us, like all the aspirations that we had of what we wanted to be when we grew up were shattered. Like astronaut, fighter pilot, doctor, teacher, paled in comparison to this life we saw standing before us. So we just stood there. And eventually he just walked back into his garage. He said, well, it was nice to meet you boys. Started to close his garage door when I blurted out. But do you need testers? He said, do I need what? I said, do you need a couple of guys that could like test these arcade games after you fix them? And he smiled and he said, yeah, I guess I could use a couple, but only two. Don't tell anybody else. So we went into that garage that night and we played Pac-Man and 
Galaga and armor attack and space invaders and asteroids. This was one of the first days of our summer vacation. And for the rest of that vacation, every day we would do whatever we did, road hockey, riding our bikes, playing football in my parents' backyard, water skiing. But every night right after supper, we would make our way over to Mr. Arcade's house. That's what we called it, Mr. Arcade. And we would play video games. It was awesome. But what's funny is that we never really thought it was that unusual because we were Grant and Mike and Mike and Grant. And it was a world of wonder and endless possibilities. And time was always on our side. So in the end of September, Mr. Arcade left our neighborhood, which was difficult. But I'll tell you something. A few months after that, Grant and I came up with what I think might have been our best idea ever. When the snow started to fly in central Alberta that winter, we invented winter water skiing. Okay, we came up with the idea of attaching a tow rope from a water skiing boat to the back of the snowmobile. We would uh, strap on our skis and take turns towing each other off this big jump that we made in my parents' backyard and we'd work on doing different aerials. And it was during this winter water skiing phase that I realized that Grant and I had two very different gift sets. Grant was a fixer and I was a talker. So in, in winter water skiing, for example, Grant worked on the snowmobile coming up with a system by which we would attach the tow rope safely to the snowmobile. While at the same time, I went into our house and I talked to my mom and I convinced her that winter water skiing was actually a safe, enjoyable, you know what, an even wholesome way for Grant and I to spend our winters. Well, here's the thing. I got permission, Grant developed the system and over the next few winters, we spent literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours winter water skiing. And here's the thing, I will bet you that there was other 12, 13, 14 year old boys in the world that came up with better ideas than we did, but we didn't think so. Because we were Grant and Mike, and Mike and Grant. And it was a world of wonder, endless possibilities, and time was always on our side. So Grant was a fixer, and I was a talker. I remember back when we grew up, when you turned 14 in Alberta, you could get your learner's permit. And then on the day that you turned 16, you could get your full unrestricted license, which is absolutely shocking to me when I look back. Like when, when I turned 16 years old, I could barely make craft dinner for myself. And yet the government of Alberta gave me a little piece of plastic and said, you, my friend, need to operate a motor vehicle. Anyways, uh, that really had nothing to do with the story. But on, on the day that Grant turned 14, he had an uncle who dropped off a Jeep pickup truck to him, a J2000. Okay, when I say it was a Jeep pickup truck, it wasn't actually, it was more like a scrap heap at that point, okay? So he like loaded it into Grant's place and he said, this is a J2000 and here's your challenge. Sometime between now and when you turn 16, you need to fix this thing up and have it ready to run by the time you get your license. Well, Grant took on that challenge. In fact, before he turned 15, he had the J2000 running. I remember I went over to his house one day and I got there and he said, the J2000 is ready to rock. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Are you serious? He's like, yeah, yeah. He said, it was ready yesterday, but I knew you'd want to be around when we took her for a maiden voyage. So Grant's mom wasn't home. And so we decided to take it for a little spin. So we get in and Grant turns the J2000 over and it just makes this beautiful rumbling sound. It fires up. And what I'm about to tell you was a very un-Grant King-like thing. This is not like him. He must have been real nervous or real excited because instead of putting the truck into reverse to back out of the carport, he put it in forward and we went forward into the front of his mom's carport. In fact, he put a hole in it. I looked at Grant and I said, uh, I'm going home. 
He's like, why? I'm like, I do not want to be here when your mom gets home. He's like, I can't blame you. So I left. But Grant was a fixer. He, he fixed the carport. He fixed the J2000. Because that's what he did. Like growing up, if we ever locked our keys in the car, in any vehicle, didn't matter what vehicle, didn't matter where, didn't matter what tools Grant had, he would find a way to get in. He was the kind of guy that if your stereo wasn't working, he would pull it, adjust some wires and get it working. If you needed to change your tire, but you didn't have a jack, Grant would figure something out. Or, or let's just say, for instance, that you borrowed your parents' car one particular snowy winter day, and you drove it yet again into the ditch. And you could not get it out, no matter how hard you tried. And you knew that if you called your parents again and said, can you please help me get your car out of the ditch, that you would probably get grounded for the rest of the winter. Grant would show up with a J2000, use his winch, and get you out of the ditch. Grant was a fixer, and I was a talker. It's funny growing up because I think some people around Grant would have said, man, that kid's real quiet. Not with me, he wasn't. I would start the conversation, but he would keep it going. We would talk for hours and hours and hours. We would talk on the way to Mr. Arcades. We would talk while we were setting up winter water skiing. We would lie down on the grass in my parents' backyard, looking up at the central Alberta sky, and we would talk about a world of wonder and endless possibilities and how time was always on our side. You know, it's been well documented that as the years went on, when I turned 15, 16, 17 years old, I really began to go off the rails. There was turmoil inside of me and it was manifesting in the way that I was acting. And at first, Grant went off the rails with me because we were Grant and Mike and Mike and Grant. And so he was a little piece of sanity in a world that for me was becoming increasingly insane. I remember there'd be these nights where there'd be a big party in Red Deer party at the river, party at the lake, party at the bar. You got to be there. And so Grant and I would grab our fake IDs and head into Red Deer and the J2000, ready to roll. And we would arrive and we would park. And then one of us would say to the other one, let's just hang out here for a minute. Let's not go in yet. And so we would sit there and we would start to talk. Listen to music. We always had basically the same soundtrack to all our conversations. It was the Joshua Tree album by U2. And we would listen to that thing over and over and over again. See, we wouldn't just be there for a minute. We would be there for hours. And the only thing that punctuated the passing of the time was the sound that the cassette made in the cassette deck as it churned from side A to side B, back to side A, back to side B. And once in a while, we'd switch it up. We'd go with a little bit of Def Leppard or Springsteen, The Cult or John Cougar Mellencamp, but always back to U2. U2 War, U2 Under a Blood Red Sky, U2 Wide Awake in America. But our go-to, the soundtrack of our conversations was U2, The Joshua Tree. We talk about a world of wonder and endless possibilities and how time was still on our side. We talk about girls too. <laughs> it's funny, a lot of best friends I think are competitive with each other, not Grant and me. We were, we were each other's biggest fans. Like we'd be sitting there and Grant would say something like this, man, I'd really like to date that girl, but I don't know if she'd want to date me. And I'd be like, you're kidding me, right? Like, you're kidding me. (laughs) Like every girl in Red Deer would want to date you. Like if I went over to her house right now with this piece of paper and I said, you need to sign this if you want to date Grant King. Before I finished, she would have signed it 20 times. He'd say, he'd say, are you serious? I'd be like, you know, I am. He'd say, well, you, you know, by the way, that every girl in this city is in love with you. Like I hear them talking. Oh, he's so good looking. He's so cool all the time. I'm like, are you serious? 
He'd be like, oh, you know I am. And we'd high five each other. And then we'd go back to arguing over the real meaning of with or without you. Sade, track three, the Joshua tree, in case you were wondering. And we talked. And very, very often, we never made it into the party. And it was funny because sometimes the next day I'd have guys that were at the party and they'd be like, man, Grant, you didn't even make it. Where were you? You missed out. And it's hilarious when I think about it now, because honestly, those moments, Grant and Mike and Mike and Grant, a world of wonder and endless possibilities and time being on our side. Those are the only moments that I miss from those days. But the months went on and the years went on and the turmoil inside of me continued. And I went more and more and more off the rails. And I saw Grant less and less. See, Grant eventually figured out what the rest of the world had already figured out, that hanging around with Mike Manis wasn't necessarily smart and it definitely wasn't safe to go to the places that I was going with the people that I was seeing and the things that I was doing. So I saw him less and less. But if you still would have asked me, I would have told you, Grant's my best friend. He would have said the same thing. We were still Grant and Mike and Mike and Grant, even though we didn't see each other much. He'd still show up and fix things once in a while. I'd be in a parking lot somewhere or in a field and I would have bitten off more than I can chew. A couple guys ready to beat me up and out of the blue, somehow Grant would find out and he'd show up in the parking lot with the J2000. He'd get out and say something like this. Guys, gentlemen, gentlemen, I think what my buddy Mike is trying to say is he's very sorry that he insulted you. He would throw me into the J2000 and we would drive off. And I remember those moments because just for a second, just for a second, it was back to a world of wonder and endless possibilities. And the fact that time was still on her side. Well, I continued to struggle and I saw Grant less and less until one day I reached the end of myself on the South Hill in Red Deer in the middle of the night, in the middle of January, I called out to Jesus and he saved me. He took me from off the rails onto a new path of hope. And when it happened, Grant was in Winnipeg actually working with his uncle for another three months. And when he got back, I remember as soon as he arrived back in town, he phoned me, picked it up. He said, long time no see, MJ. I said, you know it, GK. He said, what are we doing? And it got kind of awkward on the phone. Because the truth is, uh, up till that point in our lives, our go-to uh, was kind of like trouble. And, and, and the truth is, like the places that we used to go and the people that we used to hang with and the things that we used to do, they were all on-ramps to off the rails for me. And so eventually, I just said, hey, why don't you come over? And we didn't live in the same subdivision anymore. My parents had moved us about 25 minutes southeast of Red Deer, and Grant eventually came over. And we stood there talking and it was weird because we couldn't figure out what to do. And for the first time in my life, I was a talker, but I ran out of words. And then Grant fixed it. He said, you know what we need to do? We need to go camping. It was an unseasonably warm spring day in Alberta. And uh, Grant had his tent and his stuff in the back of the J2000 and I grabbed my stuff and we headed east. And we headed east until we got to a, a small lake with a forest on the south side. We drove the J2000 as far as we could into the forest. And then uh, we got out and walked till we found a good spot. We pitched the tent. We lit a fire. We didn't bring any food with us, but we found a, a, a bag of popcorn seeds on the floor of the J2000. So what we did is we put the seeds into beer cans and we attached the beer cans onto sticks and we would pop the popcorn over the fire. 
and we talked. We talked about a world of wonder and endless possibilities. But this time it started to feel like time wasn't on our side anymore. See, there was something about that moment that made me feel like this was goodbye. That it, Grant and Mike and Mike and Grant were going to be going their separate ways. See, we're 19, maybe 20 years old, and it's that weird transition time be, between being boys and becoming men. So as we talked, every time that we would start to talk about the future, we would get real nervous. I think we kind of realized that time maybe wasn't on our side as much. Grant had brought his stereo over, and this time we didn't switch it up at all. We just went with one soundtrack, Joshua Tree, over and over and over again. We talked about Mr. Arcade. We talked about winter water skiing. We talked about ski trips to Banff and being kids and getting in and out of trouble and a life enriched by being together, you know? Eventually Grant looks at me and he says, check it out. And I looked over and the sun was rising. He said, I guess we didn't need to set up the tent after all. I said, I guess we didn't. So we walked back to the day 2000. We drove to my house, Grant dropped me off. And we hung out other times after that, but that was the last time that it was Grant and Mike and Mike and Grant. A world of wonder and endless possibilities because the truth is we finally kind of ran out of time. A few months later, I left Red Deer and I went to Trinity Western University in Langley. I met a girl there named Corinne. We ended up getting married. <laughs> and, one, and one of the reasons that I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her was after our second date, when we had talked for hours and hours and hours, I looked at her and I said, you really, you really remind me of Grant King. And she said it was one of the best compliments she had ever gotten. A few years after that, Grant moved to Australia. Last week, Corinne was looking through some of our old stuff and she found a postcard from Grant that he wrote to us from Australia. He was hanging out in a place called Surfer's Paradise. He said we needed to come check it out. He said Corinne and I should come to Australia and we could stay with him. But by that time, Corinne and I were married and Tori was on the way. As I thought about it last week, I'm not even sure that I replied to that postcard. I sure hope I did. But more than anything, what I wish is I wish I could go back to that fire, (laughs) popping popcorn in beer cans in Pine Lake, Alberta. And I wish I could tell them thanks. Thank you for a world of wonder and endless possibilities and this feeling that time was always on our side. And when I think about that night, it feels kind of heavy to me. It feels kind of sad. And I wonder why I felt like I needed to tell you that story today to kick off this series on heaven. And then it hit me. There's a quote that I really love 
by another GK, <laughs> GK Chesterton. He says this, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. For we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. So here's the thing. I'll bet that you've never sat around a fire in Pine Lake, Alberta, (laughs) popping popcorn in beer cans. But I'll bet you remember a moment. I'll bet you remember a moment of transition where looking back now, you think, man, that was the end of wonder as I stepped into the world. That was the end of endless possibility and the beginning of endless responsibilities. That was the end of awe and the beginning of exhaustion. But I guess I want to tell you that I don't think it's the end of wonder. In fact, those Mr. Arcade moments, those winter water skiing moments, I believe that that longing has a fulfillment. I, 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 I believe that we were born to long for that, to, to long for wonder. In fact, I would go as far as to say this, that we were made for wonder and it doesn't need to end. It needs to be restored. And the way that I was going to end this sermon is I was going to say, and if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you someday. Someday on the other side of eternity, you'll see Grant and Mike and Mike and Grant. And we'll be popping popcorn in beer cans around a fire and we'll call you over and we'll talk to you about a world of wonder and endless possibilities where time is always on our side and the best is always yet to come. We'll talk about friendship that doesn't fade and the friend above all friends named Jesus. We'll talk about conversations that can continue. We'll talk about adventure. We'll talk about greatness. We'll talk about absolute and complete joy. I'll prove it to you someday. That's how I was going to end the sermon, but I decided not to because I really believe that part of this series that we're entering into today, it's not just about someday, it's about this day. That I truly believe that not only does God want to give you the hope that there is wonder out there someday, but that wonder can be restored to you this day, today, right now. Man, I feel real heavy and I feel real heartbroken for you because I feel like 2020 has been difficult. And I feel like there's a lot of us that, We've grown old. And what I want to suggest is at the soul level, we need to get younger. We've grown cynical and we need to start being wide-eyed again. See, I believe the plan of Jesus is is a plan for someday, but it's also a plan for this day. That not 
only do we have the hope of wonder, but we have the renewal of wonder right now. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 26. There's, there's a story about a paralyzed man, and he has four friends. And when these four friends hear that Jesus is visiting their town, um, they load him up and they take him to Jesus because they believe that Jesus can heal him. But when they get to the house where Jesus is preaching, it's way too packed. They can't get in. So you know what these four guys do? They climb up on the roof. They cut a hole in the roof and they lower him in to see Jesus. And Jesus heals this paralyzed man. He sets him free. And Luke chapter five, verse 26 says, and everyone there was gripped with awe and wonder. That's it. I wish that I could sit with you around a fire. Popping popcorn and beer cans and listening to the Joshua tree. But let's just pretend that we are. Because I want to tell you about something. I want to tell you that this day, today, right now, it's a world of wonder and endless possibilities. And time really is on our side. And the best, the best, the best, the best is yet to come. Join us next week. Please don't miss one single week of this series. I love you. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And to stay up to date with all things Southside, follow at Southside underscore church on Instagram. We love you guys. The best is yet to come.